All right. This is in the book of Acts, and you can take there and look at that story again. We've been walking through. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, that's describing the activities that they were doing. That's not describing the purpose that they were doing. There's a, a big difference between activity and purpose. And when, when we look at it, the question is, well, what do we see here? What, what was it that they were devoting themselves to? And I want to suggest to you this morning, what they were devoting themselves to was the pursuit of Jesus. Right? The pursuit of Jesus. Those were activities they did in the pursuit of Jesus, but it was the pursuit of Jesus they were after. They weren't satisfied with just the stuff they did. They were trying to find out more. And, and remember how that broke out. All of a sudden, Peter stands up and preaches a message. They knew about the crucifixion. All of a sudden, they're hearing about a resurrection. And they're baffled. They're looking in Scripture. They're finding out all kinds of things they never saw before. It's like they're looking with new eyes. And, and they're, the place is going wild. With Jesus is on their lips. Jesus is on their heart. And they're doing everything they can to pursue him. People who had been pilgrims in town and should have gone home a long time ago are still there. They're adjusting on the fly. They're uh, creating small groups together. They're putting people in their homes they've never met before. Right? Moms, you know how that works. That's a weird thing. And, and they're adjusting on the fly because they're dealing with three to 5,000 people right out of the get-go and probably many more who are meeting on the temple steps. And so um, they, were, they were pursuing them. And uh, so, again, I want to say that's true for us as well. It's not so much what we're doing, but why we're doing what we're doing. And this morning should be that we have come. Why? Because we're in pursuit of Jesus. That we are looking to find Him. We are looking to know Him. We are looking to line up with His agenda, not get Him to line up with our agenda. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning as we uh, go along in this. But in the pursuit of Jesus, it is really easy to get the order wrong. Now notice as they pursued Jesus, and as you look at those chapters, they did a lot of things to meet people's needs. And people's needs were met. But the primary purpose wasn't to meet people's needs. The primary purpose was to provide a format where they could pursue Jesus. And in the process of pursuing Jesus, they found their needs met. But it's really easy for us to turn that and flip it backwards, uh, even with community groups, and make it like, uh, it can become about meeting my needs. What are you providing for me? I'm this sector, I'm single, or I'm a college age, or I'm married, I've got kids, I don't have kids, I'm young, I'm old, I'm green, I'm blue, right? Um, what, do you, what do you have for me? And it's really easy to get the whole order flipped around. If you don't provide for my needs, I'm not interested in pursuing what you've got. And the church can fall into that. What can you offer me? What's in it for me? Or, as we know in the sports world, what have you done for me lately? Right? It's just really easy to make anything, even as we've been talking about community groups, uh, the Christian life for that matter, about me and, and about my agenda. Um, now, what happens if we do that? What, is, what does that look like? And I, I want to use a illusion this morning um, as we're talking Jesus said this seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added 
Seek first His righteousness, and all these things will be added. Sometimes we go after all the things that can be added, then later hope we find Jesus. Right? Uh, the kingdom's kind of second. And we must always remember that we are to be a people of the first love. That means Jesus beats out everything. Jesus beats out salary. Jesus beats out job opportunities. Jesus beats out lust. Jesus beats out uh, even the Seahawks, yes. Okay? That Jesus is the primary purpose that we pursue, not second, third, fourth, tenth, twenty-fifth. Right? You ever notice how I can drop down the scale and, and move off? We are to seek his kingdom. It's hard to do sometimes, though. I want to use this illustration with you. This is an old hag. All right? You can see her in there. But there's also in this picture a beautiful young woman. Right? Now, how many of you can see the old hag? Right? All right, got that? How many of you can see the beautiful young woman? How many can see neither? <laughs> All right. All right. Take a look. Yeah, go ahead. You can mumble, talk. What? Zach wrestled with this all week. <laughs> and he finally saw it, I think, last night. So he, he, he couldn't see the beautiful young woman. Now, obviously, this is a drawing, but it's an illusion that is very helpful for us this morning. Okay? It's very helpful and speaks to our purposes of what we're talking about. Many of us, when it comes to the Christian life and it comes to church, comes to that sort of thing, that's all we see is the old hag. We see us. We see people. We see their faults. We see their failings. And the classic quote is what? Church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Right? A bunch of broken, sinful, ugly people who are acting like they got it all together and better than everybody else. That is not true. The church is full of what? Very broken, ugly people who got a lot of problems. Right? If you're perfect, you probably aren't going to fit with us very well. Right? The, it's hard to see the other side. What's the, what's the beautiful side in the Christian life? It's when you see Jesus. You can come to church and see church and see this and do all that kind of stuff and activity and still not be able to see Jesus. And some of you right now are afraid your salvation's online because you can't see the beautiful young woman. All right? No, that's not true. All right? Just relax. It's not what I'm saying. But you have to be able to see the other side. When you see Jesus, then it changes the way you see the old hag. And the old hag is the bride of Christ this morning. The old hag is the church. You know, our culture said the church is done, the church is over with. It's no longer relevant. It's no longer useful. And I want to suggest to you that in Jesus, the church is beautiful. Okay? In Jesus, the church is awesome. But you've got to be able to see Jesus to be able to see through the cracks and the warts and the bumps that exist within his bride. There were lots. The, the thing we don't get in the book of Acts is there were a lot of things wrong. That was not a perfect culture. That was not a perfect people. That was not a perfect time. There were a lot of wrecks going on just like today. Yet in the midst of that, they had seen Jesus and they pursued him with a vengeance. And as they pursued him with it, did you get it yet, Sarah? Oh, awesome. There we go. We have victory over on the right side of the auditorium, or left side. All right? Keep looking if you haven't got it. All right? 
This is why scripture says, remember John chapter 9? Remember that story of the man born blind and the disciples said, hey, why was this man born blind? Was it some sin he did? And they said, no, Jesus said, that's not it at all, but he was born blind for the glory of God. And so it goes on in the story and Jesus heals the man born blind and there's this whole rhetoric about how he got his sight and he got thrown out of the synagogue because he was claiming Jesus did it. And... Uh, but he could see, and when he came to Jesus, he said, the one who's healed you is standing before you. And he said, and he says he bowed and he worshipped him. But the Pharisees looked and they said, well, what, are we blind too? Kind of that attitude. Hmm. And he says, you claiming that you can see are still blind. Right? And that's like this illusion. Sometimes you can say, oh yeah, I see it, but you don't see it. You can't see the beautiful young lady. You can only see the old hag, but you're claiming, oh yeah, I can see it. You still remain blind. You've got to be able to see Jesus himself. Apart from the church, apart from the culture of the church, you've got to see him. And when you see him and he opens your eyes, it changes the way you see everything else. I know for me, this was radical. I'd been in church all my life. and had never seen Jesus until I was 22 years old. Never been the same since. Can't get over it. And it wasn't me that gave me eyes to see. It was Jesus who gave me eyes to see. And a very good prayer is, Lord, if you're looking at this saying, I can't see the beautiful young woman, Lord, give me eyes to see. I'm not talking about this picture, right? I'm talking about give me eyes to see you. I cannot see you. Give me eyes to see you. And I want to suggest once we have that happening and we're in pursuit of Jesus, then it makes all the sense in the world to be involved in small groups together and talk about that love relationship and talk about the person we've run into and engage on that level because we're pursuing something that's really profound. Now, let's go through this together. What are community groups for? All right. If you want to come back, we'll come back to that picture if you haven't got it yet. All right. Sorry to mess up your day. But um, there are some things community groups are for and there are some things they are not for. So in the context of what I've just said, see if this makes sense. First of all, they are for the pursuit of Jesus. All right? It's to learn to love him better. You get with a group of believers and you find out how they pursue Jesus and you find out how you pursue Jesus and it's iron sharpening iron and together you go after him. And you go after him with a passion. And that's best done in a small group setting. It's best done together where you trust the people in your group and you can share things and you can work it through and you can get it out. So learning to love God better is a lifelong pursuit. Second, it's for fellowship. There's that word again, right? We talked about that. Fellowship, it's the communion of the saints. It's learning to love each other better. Believe it or not, we are not that good at loving each other. Okay? We are pretty good at being plastic. We are pretty good at being walled. We are pretty good, well, we are really good at being control freaks. All right? And uh, the truth is, most people get in our way and they bug us. All we've got to do to prove that is put us on the freeway. Just irritate the tar out of us. Right? So we try to avoid other people. And actually the thought of getting close to other people and letting them see my heart is a fairly threatening proposition for most of us. Because we like doing this. We like keeping each other distant. That is a great way to operate. I cannot get hurt that way. And so we erect walls and then we die within the prison we've erected. Because almost always those prisons, there's some lie that Satan has sown that says you have to do that. And then we can't get out of the prison we erect. 
By the way, the only one who can do that is Jesus again. Why? Because he came to what? Set the captives free. It's really weird to realize you're in the prison of your own making. That your sin has put you there. And Jesus frees you out of that. So fellowship is really important because that's where we get to see Jesus among us. Knowledge is important. Getting to know the word better uh, takes place really in a small group where you're cranking through stuff, looking at passages. You've got time to talk about it. Uh, we in this church encourage people to read through the Bible. Yes, the whole thing. The whole thing. If you read from uh, Genesis to Malachi uh, or Malachi, the Italian prophet, right? <laughs> And then you go from Matthew to Revelation and then start right back over again. If you read four chapters a day, not on Sunday, six days a week, four chapters a day, you easily go through the Bible in a year. It is not that hard. Satan has convinced us it's impossible, I can't do it. It's, it's easy to do. You just have to have a commitment. I read four chapters a day and you knock through the Bible a year. You, we are committed to getting to know the word better. And what we said last week, you can never know all there's there is to know in the Word of God. Trust me. I've tried. It doesn't, uh, there's stuff I, I'm not even close to yet. Here's another one. Obedience. Small groups, community groups are for getting, growing in obedience. Where there's an area of my life, I know it's out of whack. I know I'm not tracking. I know I cave into fear. I know I'm not supposed to talk that way. And, but I'm never really going to get on it. And finally, a brother or sister says, Hey, you know, have you thought about that and how that's coming across? And you know, would you want to walk on that together? And yeah, was well, Jesus said anything? Yeah, well, yeah, you know, all right, I'll do it with you. And you're able to overcome a, a, a tough area in your life because other people are willing to walk with you, and that's best done in a small group. That's where it takes place, right? High school group, I groups, the same thing. Right? Your pursuit of Jesus is about, I groups are about the pursuit of Jesus, not meeting your needs. I got news for you. Right? And it's about learning to encourage each other towards Christ. Because in the schools, do you necessarily get encouraged about Christ to pursue that first love? No, not even close, right? So it's really easy to let that just float way off and act Christian, but Jesus went out of the equation a long time ago, right? You've got to get Jesus back in that equation. The best way to do that is in small groups. All right? Also, one of the things small groups are great for is compassion. All right? The whole idea of um, um, learning to care for others better. Learning, uh, hey, some people, someone got really hurt, and hey, we could bring some meals over, or we could mow their lawn this week, or we could do... That's best done in a small group. Who could do that this week? All right, well, we'll do it next week. We'll cover, right? And we do this all the time. Soccer teams, what do they do? They pass around a list. What's it for? Who's going to bring snacks, right? And you have basketball teams. And okay, who's going to carry? Who's going to cart the kids? And who's gonna... We do this all the time. It works the same way in the church. We are better at compassion when we're broken into small groups because you can get your hands around it, right? You, it's not that big blob out there. Uh, any of you have disaster overwhelmness. It used to be, you know, once or twice a year you'd have a big disaster, we'd all rally to it. Now there's disasters happening multiple times each week. Which one do you respond to? Right? It's, it's like um, the panhandlers on the, on the street corners. There used to be one or two and you'd say, oh, I might help that guy out. Now there's one on every corner. Right? 
By the way, my answer to that is I give to Union Gospel and I, I tell them, hey, go to Union Gospel. That's where I gave my money. They'll have a meal for you. All right? um, but you can get overwhelmed with that. In a small group, you can take it in bun- uh, bite-sized chunks, little, little bites together. And then the other thing community groups are good for is an open door. One of the things that we don't realize when we are in a group is that it's hard if you're not in the group to get into the group. And so we see people walk in the door, we see people smiling, we say, hi, hope you had a good day, and welcome to our church. And they have no relational connect. They just came and enjoyed a service. Hopefully they enjoyed it, right? But that doesn't really mean they're connected. Well, how does a new person get connected? Well, one of the best ways is you have small groups where, hey, do you you guys belong to a small group? Would you like to join ours and, and come and see what it looks like and come and test it out? And so new people can get incorporated really easy in small groups where it's really hard for the big group. Uh, you know, can you imagine all 120 of us saying, hey, we will all take you out to lunch. <laughs> you know, wouldn't Red Robin be thrilled to see us, you know. Um, that doesn't work really well. But if you hey, this is our small group and, and a couple of us are going out for lunch, would you like to join us? And here's when we meet and here's when we do that. And it gives us a, a, a way to welcome and incorporate new people so they feel like they belong as well. And guess what? When new people show up, what do they say to them? Well, when we showed up, here's what they did for us. And we have a small group now. Would you like to join our group? And the pattern repeats itself, and uh, it's really good. Now, I think those make sense to you. I don't think that's um, too hard to grasp. What they are not for, what are community groups not for? Here's two things that you should not do. And if you do, they will get you in trouble. Because neither the people in your group nor me will like it. All right? And the first one is this. They are not agenda platforms. Okay? Where you come in and I have an agenda to run and I'm going to run my agenda over that on top of the group. Um, we all have that. We all have strong wills and we all have agendas. But small groups are not the place to run your agenda. You did not join the group so you could get a foothold so that you can run an agenda. That, that's, read the New Testament. Every time the disciples did that with Jesus, how well did it go? Right? And I want to suggest it won't go any better for us because the Holy Spirit will get on us and the Holy Spirit will not let us and the Holy Spirit will start coming against us. And like Paul said, or like Jesus said to Paul, it's hard to kick against the goads. Right? So it, it really is about giving up our agendas and letting God reorchestrate those, but that doesn't go well in a small group. I think all of us have been in a group where that's happened, and you're like, seriously, it, it like robs the life of the group because the group can't do what it's supposed to do. So, so don't do that, all right? If you're joining a community group and you're going to be involved, do not do that. Please. You don't want to be in my office if you do that. It will not go well. Secondly, they are not complaint central. This is not the customer service department at Fred Meyer's. Or you can come and tell them everything wrong they do as a company. And you can sit there and complain and demand a rebate. All right? Um, and this is a bigger one than we think. By the way, this one, most of the time, we are not even aware we are complaining. We just complain by nature. That is in our flesh. And so it seems natural to us to be able to do this. And this one is so... Um, deceptive and subtle and weaves its way like a weed root through the thing that I, I want to spend just a, a second. There's a, some really strong commands in the New Testament. If you look 
in Philippians. Um, this would be in the NIV, and it says this, Do everything without complaining or arguing. Now just stop there. If we all obey just that command in the New Testament, would the church be different? It really would, wouldn't it? What we like to do is come to church and what we like to do is go home and complain. Some of you have roast pastor after Sunday. <laughs> a little ketchup, make it taste better. But it's, it's, we are a nation of armchair quarterbacks. Right? We do nothing. We watch a football game. We have nothing to do with it. We've ex- exerted no energy at all. But we sit back like we have been endowed with the, the, the responsibility to critique their performance. And so we critique their performance and they should have done better. And we are a nation of that, not just in sports, but in almost everything we do. And so therefore we feel very entitled to be able to critique opinions as they're going along, we don't stop and say, hey, that may not have gone the way I want, but what was the Lord saying in that? Because what we realize is we end up becoming uh, guilty of critiquing the Lord himself. Look at, uh, this is in ESV. It says, by everything without grumbling or disputing. Where do church splits come from? They come from small groups that start complaining and then it becomes a negative listening post and then it becomes divided opinion. Right? So this is, this is really, really important. And we have to realize that 95% of the time when we are complaining, we are actually complaining against the Lord himself. When we're critiquing other brothers and sisters in Christ, when we're critiquing our mate, when we're throwing each other under the bus, yes, we do that. Yes, we can be stinking ugly people. Right? You beautiful out there, you look awesome. We can be nasty. Right, And when we do that, we don't realize we are actually sinning against the Lord himself. Look at uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Now, when you go through uh, Genesis, Exodus, uh, particularly Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the, the last four, the first one is about the beginnings, but the last four are about the journeys in the wilderness with Moses, right? And in that... There's a particular thing that happens really consistent with Israel that drove God nuts to the point where he was so frustrated and said, fine, you don't want to come into my promised land, then you can die in the desert. And they chose to die in the desert instead of repent. Think about that. Everybody goes, oh, God did that to him. What a mean, evil God. No, they were being asked to come in the promised land and they were, had such a complaining spirit They chose not to go in the promised land and they chose rather to die in the desert. Now that seems insane to us and yet we do the same thing all the time. Look at Deuteronomy 1. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. They said, God, you know why you brought us out here? We got it. We figured it out, you clever person. You you brought us out here to kill us. It wasn't to rescue us. Look at this disaster and catastrophe. Ha! We should have stayed in Egypt. We knew better than to listen and come out in the desert with you. What were they doing? They were attributing evil to God's motives. You know anybody who does that? And let me tell you, hear this with everything you've got in your heart, because I'm not joking on this. Very few things tick off the heart of God than that. 
when you attribute evil to his motives. Remember when the Pharisees were talking to Jesus and they said, hey, he's got an evil spirit and it's by the evil spirit that he casts out demons? There are very few things you see in the New Testament that get Jesus so upset as when they claimed that uh, he had an evil or dirty spirit. Why did they claim the spirit he was doing it out of was evil? Because they claimed Jesus himself was a Samaritan, a half-breed. We would know it in our language as a bastard child. Illegitimate. And he was dirty, so the spirit he was operating with dirty. You read those passages. There is very few places where Jesus gets that upset and gets that intense about that. And it, likewise, the Israelites, they, had a, a, they were grumbling, they were complaining. Now, was it easy? No. Are our lives easy? No. Does that mean we're entitled and, and given the right so that we can complain through the whole trip? No. And we better get that figured out. And where did they grumble? Where was it that this all took place? Where was it that it became so obnoxious to God? Look in that passage again. They grumbled in their tents. In other words, in their small groups, in their community groups, in their homes, they had a spirit of complaining and grumbling, arguing and disputing. And in the end result, they never did see the promised land of God. They wound up dying in the desert. That happens to churches. We get good at everything that's wrong. We, we no longer see what's good. And we end up grumbling and complaining and we call it the death of a church. Be it a split, be it whatever. It's a very serious problem that we don't realize because we don't um, really track warfare very well and we really don't track whether I'm operating in the flesh or the spirit very well. But those natures take place. So the plea from this morning is, please, when you come to your groups, come in the spirit of the spirit of the Holy Spirit, and come without an attitude of complaining. And if you just got that in you, right? There's sometimes you're just going to want to grumble. There's a very wise uh, saying in Proverbs, even a fool, if he keeps silent, is considered wise. All right? Zip it. Zip it. Take it between you and the Lord. Don't, don't stain other people with it. All right. There's also in small groups what I call the fine art of deference. And you're going, what are you talking about? Philippians also here says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, which is, I think, hilarious because we do everything from selfish ambition and conceit. Right? Do nothing from self... You, no, you don't do that. You don't have a problem with that? Wow, you are godly people. All right. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Now, I, I wanted to think of a, a, a fun way that would get your attention with this, so I came up with, I think, a killer illustration. All right? So here's my illustration. Apple pie. Oh, we're getting close to lunch. A little ice cream. Yum, 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 right? All right, I got your attention. Look at your eyes. Oh, this message is getting good right now. Here we go. Now, imagine that there's eight people in your community group and so we're serving apple pie. I groups, right, for you guys. We're serving apple pie, and there's eight of you. So I take, and I take my knife, and I cut that apple pie into eight pieces. What is this, what is this idea of um, consider others better than yourself? What does it mean to operate in humility? Well, imagine that I come, and I want to share that night, because i got something really important that I've got to share. And so uh, there's eight people, eight pieces of pie. But when it comes to my turn, I grab four pieces of that pie. 
I take mine. I take your suit, Jason and Kim. You didn't want pie anyways. You're on weight, right? And Dean and Lori, I take your two, right? So I've just taken, plus my piece, five pieces of pie. Now, how many are left on, in the pan? Three, okay? There's seven other people, and now there's only three pieces left. How well is that going to go over? You ever been in a group where someone dominates the time the whole time and nobody else gets a word in edgewise? Right? In deference, you come to the group going, hey, what's my appropriate share of the pie? And I've already taken up my time. I've had my piece. Now, if someone like Matt says, hey, Steve, that's really important. Take my chunk and keep going because I think we've got to walk through that tonight. That's operating in humility. That's operating in deference to others or holding others in higher honor. But notice it's given in that Matt says, you can have my peace. It's not done in the spirit of, hey, Matt, this is so important. I'm taking your peace whether you want me to or not. You don't like pie anyway, so I'm eating it, right? No, no, no. Think of emotional time. In most small groups, you've got an hour to an hour and a half. And in that, you have a certain chunk that's allotted to you to share and to participate and to pray. Take your share. Don't take other shares. Don't take their piece. Don't take two, three, four pieces because then everybody else has to cram and you've got to slice the slices smaller and smaller. And eventually, it's so thin, why even have any? And that'll kill the spirit of a group too. So I call this the fine art of deference. And lastly, in spite of all these things, I want to encourage us not to do life alone. In spite of all those hurdles... Don't do life alone. Don't sit on the fringe. Don't be by yourself. This is in 1 Peter. It says, Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for each other. And notice that would have to be in the context of a group somewhere. You can't have a sincere love and not have people in your group. Have a sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. That is a command of Scripture. It is not to be plastic and get along and pretend you like each other and kind of be nice. It is to develop a genuine love for each other. A genuine love deeply from the heart. Deeply, it says, love one another deeply from the heart for you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Why can you love others deeply? Even though they might be hard and even though it might be difficult? Because here's the secret. Jesus has loved us. He has loved you. Were you always beautiful and cooperative and not so much, right? And yet he loved you when you were ugly. Therefore, you can love others when they're ugly. Why? Because you now have Jesus inside you. If you can't, you should go back and recheck your birth. Because it might highly be you think you're Christian, but you don't have the Holy Spirit giving you that love for other people. And this is not, have nothing to do with extrovert or introvert. It doesn't say, hey, all extroverts love each other deeply. Introverts, you're off the hook. Sorry, that's not in there. It says we are to love each other deeply. Why? Because we've been born again. Look at uh, this in, in 1 Peter 4. Above all, love each other deeply. Anytime God says something twice, it's not because he's bored and it's not because he ran out of, he doesn't know what to say, so he's just filling space with the same old stuff he said before. And as a matter of fact, if God emphasizes it twice in one book, that means it's really important. Who is writing this book? The last two quotes are from who? Peter. What did Peter have a problem with? Loving other people. Peter was a road grader. Peter plowed through and then later looked at the debris field and said, oops. 
How many times do you see him do that in Scripture? He was not that good at loving people. He was good at knocking it out. Get it done. And yet, at the end of his life, he's writing, and what's he saying? Love each other deeply. Who do you think learned to love other people deeply? Peter. Peter was a changed man. Peter was very different at the end of his life than he was at the beginning of his life. And so he's passing on what he's learned that's become the most valuable thing to him that God has underlined and italicized and emphasized and slanted and bolded and just printed out on the spirit of his life. Peter, love other people deeply. And he's passing it along to the churches that he's writing to. It says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over what? A multitude of sins. Is there sin in the church? Was there sin that happened this week? You know, when you walk in on Sunday morning, when we pray up in that room, one of the great things about the prayer is, Lord, we don't know this week what's happened. We don't know who's moved towards you. We don't know who moved away from you. We don't know who chose not to sin and move towards you. We don't know who chose sin and chose to move away from you. We have no idea of the heart condition of anybody that's walked in. But you do. And therefore, your spirit needs to roam among us as we do church. And you need to tap that and tap them where they are. Are they close? Are they far away? If there's hardness, you've got to break through that. If there's strength, you've got to strengthen them. If they need courage, you're going to have to give that to them. There's a million different needs on a morning like this just among this group of people. That's not even including second service. And then think about the churches across the country and across the world they're meeting. There's sin in the church. But what? Love covers over a multitude of sins. Hasn't that been true in your life? Hasn't Jesus' love covered over a multitude of your sins? That's why we should be, of all people, the most grateful, thankful people on the face of the earth. Because something's been done for us that we could not do for ourselves. It says, offer hospitality to one another without, what's the word? Grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Have a great time in your community groups. Do it in the spirit. Don't complain. Don't argue. You know why? Because it's not about you. It's about Jesus, and it's about the pursuit of Jesus. And if you're in a small group because it seems to be the Christian thing to do, and you forgot the pursuing Jesus piece, you may want to back up and say, you know what? I got the cart before the horse. I'm doing Christian activity, but I don't have the right target. I don't have the right motive. I, Jesus, I need to put you first. High school group, that's just as true for you as it is for them. Right? Really easy to be in a youth group, and Jesus is nowhere close. Right? So, why can we do that? Because he's loved us. He has loved us well. And when we get in small groups, that gratefulness should come out. That sharing could, should come out. That compassion should come out. And that should add tremendous life to our church. Because why? We aren't doing life alone. The reason we're not doing life alone is because Jesus chose not to do life alone. Think about the Trinity. Theologically. They had it made. There was no sin in the universe. They didn't have to do anything. And yet God willfully chose to create man so they would have more relationship. Now, do you think he had a good, had a good uh, was that a good bargain for him? Most people would say no. Yet God thought it was eminently worth the price. That's us. That's the church. 
He said it was worth doing that. It was worth loving. The Trinity could have stayed by Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a perfect universe and not have anybody mess it up. But He chose to allow it to get messed up because He wanted to find people who would freely love Him and would pursue Him with that love. Let's pray. Father, as we close this morning, I don't know which part of the message will stick out. Uh, for some, Lord, it will be the illusion of the old hag and the young, beautiful young woman. For some, it's going to be the apple pie. For some, it's going to be the complaining piece and the grumbling piece. But Lord, whichever one sticks out, may you make it stick. And we pray for the life of your spirit among us as we operate in our groups this year, that it, we not just go, it's the same old, same old, and we're just putting in the motions. Lord, may we be a pe- group of people that are in passionate pursuit of you. And we seek you for that in your name. Amen.